All right. Good morning. Good morning again. Um, one more announcement that slipped my mind when I was there earlier because I had it written down here instead of here. Uh, this this Saturday is the leadership conference in Oxnard that Calvary Chapel Oxnard is putting on, and a couple handfuls of us are going. But if you want to be included in those handfuls, uh, it's not too late. You can you can come come with us. Um, the conference is this Saturday, uh, so the ones that are going now are going down Friday and and getting a hotel and staying the night and then uh, going attending the conference on the weekend. Um, there's a, a video about that that you don't get to see, but you can check out our Facebook page for it because I wasn't able to play it in any other way. Um, and uh, if you'd like to attend, please uh, talk with me um, today so we can get your name on that list. The other important uh, announcement, of course, that I already mentioned, but you need reminding, is the chair you're sitting in now needs to be removed after you're done with it. Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll tell you again at the end of the message for that. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, please. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You're still embarrassed about last week, aren't you? I can tell. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to our study in 1 Corinthians next Sunday, but resurrection is really just too much of a good thing. It's, it's too much to uh, let it be relegated to one Sunday and then have us move on to business as usual, such as it is. In fact, we ought, we ought to celebrate resurrection every single week. I think we do in one way or another, but I wanted to carry on the momentum from last week, Easter Sunday, and really continue to consider what Easter does to us, or try to answer the question, now that Christ is risen, what happens next? What does the resurrected Christ do, and what do we do because of his resurrection? Now, of course, on Easter Sunday, we look at, every year on Easter, we look at one of the four passages on the resurrection, the, the empty tomb from one of the gospel accounts. But, but the empty tomb is not where the gospels end. Mark does end on Easter Sunday, but Matthew ends in Galilee with Jesus meeting the disciples and commissioning them, sending them out. John also ends in Galilee with the restoration of Peter, right? And that, that wonderful breakfast scene at the lake. And Luke, where we're going to be this, mor this morning, includes a, a walk on the road to Emmaus, an extra visit with the disciples after that, and then a promise of the coming Holy Spirit. So I want to walk you through this walk that Jesus took on the road to Emmaus and, and take a look at these disciples who are leaving Jerusalem and see what the resurrected king does to them. So starting in verse 13 of Luke 24, says, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. 
and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of these of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And I'll end there for now. I'll actually read a little bit further and tell you what happens next at the end, but for now, we'll just take the story as it is. Let's pray once more for the Spirit to lead us to all truth. Father, you have been kind to us. You've sent your Son to save us. You've sent your Spirit to us as to not leave us orphans. You've adopted us as sons and daughters. Um, You open our eyes so that we can see what we couldn't see on our own. You stir our hearts, um, You reveal yourself to us in your word. We thank you for these blessings. We pray that we would have eyes to see and hearts to understand and a willingness to obey whatever call you give to us. We ask these things for your glory and the good of your church. Amen. Amen. So I I wanted to ask and answer the question, what does the resurrected Christ do? And I think we find some answers to that question here. The resurrected Christ meets us where we are as we go, even and especially when we are going in the wrong direction. More on that soon. The resurrected Christ inserts himself into conversations he was uninvited to. (laughs) He draws near in unexpected ways and provides his company even when we don't know it, even when we're not looking for it. And then he corrects our foolish minds and slow hearts and confronts our lack of faith. He teaches us from Scripture and shows us, as John 5.39 says, these are they that testify of me. He allows himself to be compelled or constrained to stay by those who are hungry for more. And he feeds us. And he opens our eyes. And he lights a fire in our hearts. And this is more implied than explicitly stated here, but you get, you get it later on in the passage. He sends us. 
Go back to verse 13 and 14. It says, Behold, two of them, these are disciples, were traveling that same day to the village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. Now, I want to point something out here. These two disciples, Cleopas and Cleopas's friend, um, were, were going the wrong way. And I don't mean that like morally necessarily. I'm not saying it was a sin to walk to Emmaus on Sundays or something like that. They were, they were probably just going home after the Passover weekend. They're just going home. Nothing wrong with that. Um, they were going back to business as usual. Um, when I say that they're going the wrong way, I'm saying that to go back to business as usual once God has been killed and then raised from the dead, that's, that's an impossible thing to do. And I, I can be confident in saying that they are going the wrong way because an encounter with Jesus will always put you on the right way. And after these disciples have an encounter with the risen Savior, they go back to Jerusalem. And after a second encounter with Jesus, Jesus tells him in verse 49, that later on in the chapter, he says, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What this means is this, Jesus didn't just encounter these disciples, he intercepted them. And this theme of the resurrected Christ coming to a disciple who is veering off course, it seems to be a gospel theme. That's how John ends his gospel as well, right? Peter goes back to fishing, Jesus finds him and restores him. This is what the resurrected Savior does. He pursues the wayward who don't get it. He gently realigns their priorities. As the hymn says, the erring child he reconciles. Let's see how he does it. Verse 15 says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus appears to these disciples in a form that they do not recognize. This is also something that the other gospel writers include in various ways. In John, it's, it's Mary Magdalene, right, who does not recognize the Lord. She thinks he's the gardener. Where have you taken his body? Now, it's unclear in that instance whether Jesus was supernaturally disguised or Mary was just beside herself with grief and confusion and it was dark outside. Um, but in this case, these disciples, their inability to recognize Jesus is supernatural. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What does the resurrected Jesus do? He hides in plain sight. Now, Jesus was really physically with these disciples. He was actually there. He wasn't a vision, a hallucination, or anything like that. And now, Jesus is really and truly physically in heaven in his glorified body. And also, really, truly with us, as he has promised, I am with you always. Now, how he is with us and how he ministers his presence to us by his spirit, that's a spiritual mystery that's beyond the scope of this particular sermon. But at this time, by this time in the history of Jesus, Jesus has already been introducing his disciples to this idea that he will be in places where they don't think to look for him, that he will be present even when we assume him to be absent. Matthew chapter 25, there's a famous passage where Jesus says, the king will come to those on his right. Come, you, are, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prisoner, and you came to me. You know how this ends, but I'm going to read it anyway. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
Now, this is not to say that Jesus is the sick person or he is the hungry or the imprisoned, but he is mystically and mysteriously present with them. And as you minister to the needy, you are ministering to Christ somehow. So he has already shown them or begun to show them, I'll be places you don't see me. An even stranger example, a more controversial one perhaps, would be in the Last Supper. Christians have been trying to figure this one out for a while. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. And then he identifies it as a memorial meal, saying, do this in remembrance of me. But by saying, this is me, he is promising the disciples something more than a memorization technique. He is offering himself. He is saying, I can be present with you when your senses deny it somehow. The disciples would have had to believe this after Jesus gives the great commission in Matthew 28. He says, lo, that's the only time I I think he says that in, in my memory verses anyway. Lo, I am with you always. And then he leaves. That would have forced them to acknowledge the fact that he meant something by I'm with you always that they need to sort of figure out. That he is in fact present beyond our observations, not dependent on our observations. At this moment, his presence can and should be expected in every moment. The disciples on the road to Emmaus were blinded from seeing Jesus, but Jesus was really, actually, truly there with them. Jesus still comes to his disciples in strange ways. His church is called his body. It doesn't resemble him often, but he's here. He says, two or more gathered. I'm here. I'm with you. He appears to us. He comes to us in, through ministry opportunities to those that are the least of these and, and through the sacraments. Now, the, not that he is those things, but he is in those things when he meets us. Why? Why does Jesus appear in a form they did not recognize? One reason I would offer, this great conversation afterwards that we're all jealous of would not have happened if these disciples recognized the full truth of the resurrection walking with them. Only on the Mount of Transfiguration does Jesus show his glory, right? And do you remember the great conversation that happened after that? Peter just talks because he doesn't know what to say. That's the conversation that would have happened. This idea of Jesus being in disguise, you could call it, well, that sort of fits with the entire incarnation, doesn't it? He has consistently come in a form that people could accept and but not understand, not fully understand. Really, this story and the other post-resurrection appearances is where that begins to change. Jesus is enlightening darkened hearts. But we're getting ahead of ourselves there. Jesus is incognito. And he says, what you talking about, guys? He says, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. He stops them in their tracks because the question seems so ludicrous. They're like, don't you know anything? Now they wouldn't have said that if they knew who they were talking to, huh? (laughs) This conversation would not have happened. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. And he said to them, what things? Tell, tell me how, what you think happened. <laughs> and basically what, what happens next from verse 19 and following, they share all the ingredients of the gospel. I, I don't say they share the gospel. They don't know the gospel. They share all the ingredients of the gospel. It's like they're reading a cookbook and saying, I don't know what this tastes like. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Verse 19, listen, they say concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. Besides this, 
it's the third day since these things have happened. Some women have amazed us. Their testimony is that they went there to find his body and angels have declared him to be alive. Angels say this guy is alive. We have other witnesses of this event. Some who were with us, they went to the tomb. They found it just as the women said. What they said is true, but they haven't seen him. They have all the ingredients of the gospel. Now, a few things to say on this part. The first thing to note is that this is only Sunday night. Okay, Cleopas can't imagine anyone not knowing about the death, Jesus' death and rumored resurrection. Jerusalem, at the time of Passover, had swollen to probably more than 2 million people for Passover. And this guy is surprised to find anyone that hasn't heard about what just happened to Jesus. Even on the day of resurrection, before it was, you know, in, in Monday's papers, this is front page news. The idea that it was a small thing and then it became exaggerated over time by some fanatic disciples, this just doesn't hold water. Everyone knew what happened. Even if they knew what happened and didn't believe what happened, they knew what happened. The more important thing to see in this passage, though, is that Jesus, he's great. He is behaving like God, which shouldn't be a surprise to any of you. Now, even in, uh, even in the garden, God asks questions of people, right? He asks questions of those that he intends to restore. Adam, where are you? To Elijah in the cleft of the rock, what are you doing here? Why are you here? To Mary, who are you looking for? Why do you weep? To Peter, do you love me? Why does God ask such good questions? It's certainly not to gather information. God asks questions in order to make you think. The best teachers do this all the time. Some teachers ask questions to make sure the student was listening. The best teachers ask questions in order to teach something. Questions make you think. They make you process and then verbalize what's in your heart, what's in your mind. Jesus is allowing these disciples to verbally process the events of the weekend. And he's allowing them to share not just a record of the events, but the hopes of their hearts. He says, why are you sad? In verse 21, they said, we had hoped that he was the one. In verse 22, they say, some of the women of our company amazed us. They are amazed, perplexed, and ultimately disappointed. And Jesus invites them to share all of these things with him. Guess what? What does the resurrected Jesus do? He still does this. He is still interested in hearing the depths of your heart. He still invites you to say, what is on your mind? Of course, he doesn't need to hear it. Of course, he doesn't need to hear from you for the sake of information, but he knows that you need to speak to him. And the maker of your mind knows that you need to process things in prayer. He's a great listener. So Jesus is drawing these disciples into this conversation, saying, yeah, I'm the only one. I am actually kind of unique among all the people in Jerusalem. We, you know, and, and he says, tell me about it. Tell me what happened. And he draws out of these disciples with his questions, all the ingredients of the gospel. And again, I say the ingredients because they are not really believing the full gospel yet, are they? But they have all the pieces necessary. It's like when someone tells a joke and people laugh and you don't. <laughs> uh, like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Everyone heard the same information. Everyone heard the same story, but there's something lacking. For whatever reason, you can't connect the dots to get the punchline, and it's not as funny when you have to explain it. Right? And it's kind of frustrating if you, you tell if you're the one telling the joke. It's a really good joke. And someone just stares at you and you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. One more time, slower. And you're like, no. I think there may be a shadow of that frustration in what we see from Jesus. He says, foolish ones. 
slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Like you had all the, the, the lead up. You had the same information as everybody else. What are you missing from the punchline? Angels said Jesus is alive. Why are you going home? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The resurrected Christ continues to this day to gently correct our foolishness, our slowness of heart, and our lack of faith. Now again, these guys had everything they needed to believe, but just couldn't or wouldn't connect the dots. There was a block there somewhere. I don't want to be overly harsh with them, but Jesus does call them foolish. By contrast, in John's gospel, John's account, we read that John believed when he saw the empty tomb, before he saw Jesus, before he had this epic Bible study. John believed. He believed when he saw the empty tomb. He believed before he saw the resurrected Lord. And Jesus tells Thomas later, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The information they had was enough for faith. Maybe they didn't understand everything, but they had enough to believe. Now, this Bible study that Jesus gives, this is really cool, right? And whenever this passage comes up, whenever this passage is mentioned, we say, boy, I wish I could have been there for that, right? Why weren't they writing things down? Now, I'd like to press into that desire that I hope you share with me. We know that Jesus says of the scriptures, these are they that testify of me. Right? You, you search the scripture in them, you think you have life, but these are they that testify of me, John 5, 39. We know that it is good and right to see Christ in the books of Moses and the, and the prophets. When you read the Old Testament, I would encourage you to look for Jesus. It is the purpose of Bible study to get to know the author, right? That's it. So rather than coming to this passage and saying, wow, I really wish I were there, but this were really cool, and of course it would be, I would invite you to examine yourself and see if that's actually something that you want. Because these are the facts. Christ has sent his Holy Spirit to lead his people to all truth. He has given us his word. Your Bibles are open on your knees right now. Uh, he's given us his word, which testifies of him. He has granted you his presence. He said, I'm with you always. He has promised to be with you always and to not leave you orphans, but give you his spirit. The disciples here, they had all the ingredients for belief and they couldn't get to the punchline. You have all the ingredients for a walk like this. You have every opportunity to have a walk like this with Jesus. The only difference being you know who he is. So really the advantage is all yours. Knowing these things, when's the last time you took a seven mile walk with Jesus? To be fair, the walk was seven miles. I don't know when Jesus showed up. It's somewhere in that, in that thing, but let me make the point anyway. If you are really saying, well, I wish I could be there in that conversation and have Jesus himself teach me from his word where he is, well, then take the walk. Take that walk. Ask Jesus to teach you by his spirit, to explain the scriptures to you. Open up your Bibles and then pray, Jesus, where are you here? I want to see you. Of course, we would like to be on this walk to Emmaus, but probably not as much as we'd like to think we want to be on that walk with Emmaus because we have conflicting de desires. We, we have the option of walking with Jesus and spending a lot of time in scripture. Most of us at the same time are tempted to do other things that appear more pressing like sleep and we succumb to these temptations. <laughs> I would just say, take a walk with Jesus. 
If this is something that's exciting to you, these guys walking with Jesus and have him explain himself in his word, well then take that walk. And then I'm, I'm giving you fair warning here of what this might look like. Don't be surprised that in this Bible study where Jesus opens your eyes to see wonderful things from his law that you didn't know before, don't be surprised that when he, he does this, he also gently calls you out on your foolishness, loneliness of heart, and lack of faith. Because the word of God, we're told, is profitable for correction, among other things. This is a really special time for these two disciples, right? This is a really special walk that these disciples went on. Because of the power of the resurrection, because of the present tense of our Savior, I believe you can still walk with Jesus. We... We just need to edit the lines of the hymn, the familiar hymn. You know, we need to sing, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he calls me a fool, and rebukes my slowness of heart. I think it could catch on. I think some uh, melodic changes might be in. Th- but but that's, what, that's what I'm reading in the text. So Jesus, he, he explains things to them. He, he teaches them, and they gain an understanding. And they, they confess, our hearts burned in us while he talked to us. But they still don't know who they're talking to. There's still more that's needed and more work in their hearts that Jesus is more than willing to do. In verse 28, it says, They drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. And this is another God thing. It's similar to why he asks questions, right? He, he asks questions not to gain information, but to bring you into a place where you're thinking rightly about your own thoughts. And, and here he says, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. Says he, he indicated that he would have gone. He's like, okay, this is your place. I'm just going to keep going. See you later. Talk soon. Send a postcard. And he does this not for him, but for, for them. God allows himself to be constrained. He allows himself to be taken hold of. The angel of the Lord allows a broken Jacob to cling to him and say, I won't let go unless you bless me. That wasn't the moment God went, oh, darn, I've got an appointment. I better hurry this up. Like he, he knows that what he can do and he knows what you can do. And he still allows you to constrain him, to compel him to stay. God allows Moses to have the audacity to tell him, I won't go unless you go before us. And Jesus is perfectly fine indicating that he has other places to be. It's another way of asking a question for your benefit, not his. The question is, do you want to spend time with me? Do you you want me to keep going? Are you hungry for more? God invites us to perseverance in prayer. This is something Jesus repeats Throughout the Gospels, Jesus, he gives the example of the, the widow who repeatedly calls for justice from the ungodly judge and is answered not because of the justice of her cause, but because of her perseverance. And Jesus says, pray like that. Now, trust me, God heard you the first time you asked for the thing. He heard you fine the first time, but he wants you to ask again. He is willing to be compelled, constrained. The disciples here, they still don't know who they're talking to. Their eyes are still blinded, and all of that's about to change in a very significant moment. Uh, Verse 30 says, Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, 
Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Okay, this, this ought to remind you of something important. The word order here, especially bless, broke, gave, this is, this is straight from the upper room. These disciples hadn't been there, these two, they're not of the 12. Um, and this is not a sacramental meal for them. This is dinner. But for Jesus, this is a very intentional move. And these words are important. Luke is, is writing this in a very intentional way. And what happens here is the whole Bible study of Jesus gets wrapped up in this event. Because when, when in the upper room, Jesus gave the 12 the bread, and he said, this is my body, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it. We remember that Jesus himself was blessed, is blessed, was broken, and was given. He was blessed forever, the blessed God and Son of God. He was broken, crucified, dead, and buried. But all of this was so that he could be given a living Savior to the entire world. Now, wasn't this exactly what Jesus just taught the disciples in verse 26? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I think it's, it's pretty cool that the disciples' eyes were opened, not in the Bible study, but in the fellowship with Jesus over a meal. Jesus made it personal, and they were able to take it personally. They had all the ingredients of the gospel and couldn't connect the dots, couldn't get to the punchline. Jesus gave them the biblical explanation of messianic theology, and they didn't know that it was the Messiah that they were talking to. And then Jesus fed them, and their eyes are opened. He made it personal, and they knew him in the breaking of the bread. John saw the empty tomb. He believed. Mary saw the empty tomb and thought the body had been robbed. She needed a little bit more, right? And then Jesus gave her the more that she needed. He calls her by name. You can't get any more personal than that. Mary. Thomas had the same information as everybody else, but again, he needed a little bit more. And of course, he walked out of the room at the most inconvenient time in history of anyone walking out of a room. Uh, but he said, I need more. And Jesus gives him more. He says, put your hand in my side, touch my wounds. These disciples on the road to Emmaus, they had the same information as John. They had a better biblical theology than anyone in the world. And they had all the explanations. But Jesus did not die and rise again in order to give good explanations. He gives himself. And these disciples needed more than Bible study. They needed to wrestle with God a little bit and compel him to stay. They needed to see that the resurrected Savior was not isolated to theory, but was someone who could share a meal with them and who gave them more than a memory, but gave them himself. In the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, uh, A.W. Tozer, he says that, well, God's nature is certainly beyond us. He says, to, to our questions, God has provided answers, not all the answers, certainly, but enough to satisfy our intellects and ravish our hearts. These answers he has provided in nature, in the scriptures, and in the person of his son. It seems that the talk on the road was probably more than enough to satisfy their intellects. And the breaking of bread was the person of the son ministering to their questioning hearts. Jesus determined that he would be revealed in the breaking of bread, an act reminiscent of a meal he used to institute the new covenant itself. This would be what opened their eyes. The resurrected Savior is still opening eyes. The resurrected Savior is still wanting to be taken personally. 
seeing Jesus is still the point. These disciples acknowledged that their hearts burned, but the, the burning formed its uh, culmination in seeing Jesus. That was the point. He opened the scriptures to us. He feeds us. He opens our eyes. One thing leads to another, and the end result is being with Jesus, seeing Jesus. And just a few closing thoughts on these guys, our friends, Cleopas and other guy. Verse, verse 33 says, So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Remember how I said to you that these guys were headed in the wrong direction? Well, after meeting with Jesus, they go that very hour at once without delay back to Jerusalem. That's a 14-mile day. Just want to have that in your mind. Um, they, just, they finally got there. Jesus waited in that conversation all the way till they reached their destination, had dinner, and then gave the indication, yeah, you gotta head, you got to head back now. Um, they go back to Jerusalem. Why do they go back to Jerusalem? Because that's where the disciples are. They seek out the fellowship of the saints. They go to church, such as it is. And these believers stir each other up with their testimonies of how they had met the resurrected Jesus. Now, again, these two disciples are the envy of many disciples who have followed them, right? They got the best Bible study ever. So follow them there. You want to have, these, have the things that these guys had? Well, it's the same Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same Jesus that encountered them, that intercepted their path, who encounters you and is willing to intercept your path. A meeting with this resurrected Savior inevitably compels us into the fellowship of other believers. He met them on the road, going the wrong way, taught them, fed them, opened their eyes, and they received this as a sending back into fellowship with his family. But wait, there's more. If you were to read through to the end of the chapter, you would see that Jesus shows up again while they're in this upper room. This is quite a, a day for these two guys. Uh, they get a double helping of Jesus in a 14-mile walk. Uh, Jesus comes and he gives them peace. He shows them his wounds to prove that he's not a spirit, but a physical being who actually died and actually rose. He goes back to the scriptures now for all the disciples, not just these two. If you, you scan down in verse 45, he's talking to the 12 and these other guys and some other disciples. And it says he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Again, this is a gift that you can have. This isn't a gift that's isolated to one road to a place called Emmaus. And then he explains the plan. And the plan essentially is, you are sent. Verse 47, it says, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then he tells them, but before you start, stay here, because it's about to get real good. Verse 49 says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, to, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high or clothed with power from on high. We know what he's talking about. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. These two disciples heading to Emmaus were there in the upper room when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples like tongues of fire. When Jesus intercepts these disciples on the road, this is where he is intending to lead them ultimately. Last week was Easter and Jesus is still alive. And he is still meeting disciples still meeting people where they are, still correcting our foolish minds and slow hearts and lack of faith. Jesus is still willing to reveal himself to us in all of scripture. He still feeds us. 
He still opens our eyes. He still lights a fire in our hearts. He is still sending us on mission in the power of his Holy Spirit. Let us pray for obedience. Jesus, uh, we thank you for how you meet us. We thank you for um, your tenderness and your gentleness and, and just your willingness to encounter wayward disciples. Um, we thank you that, that you give us peace, that you have not left us orphans. We thank you for involving us in your mission to preach the gospel to all nations. Thank you that we have a good king. Jesus, we ask for obedient hearts, for willing spirits to obey the things that you have called us to, um, for a willingness to go where you send and respond to your voice. Continue to open our eyes. Continue to burn in our hearts. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand. <clears throat> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.